Well, we've been in a series in the book of Acts, and we're nearing the end of it. We're here in Acts 25, and so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to it. And we're following the story, we've been following the story of Paul. In fact, on the screen, it calls this season two, and that's because we joked several weeks ago about how the book of Acts really, um, if, you, if it were to be like a TV series, it would be a, a TV series that only ran two seasons, uh, and season one would have been all about Peter, and season two would have been all about Paul. And so here we are in season two, and we're coming to the end of it. And like any good TV drama, or any good drama, uh, the, the, the story of the main figure, or the story of the hero of the story, if you will, um, how things end up for him is kind of um, the, the question that everybody wants to know. And so Paul has been going along, and he's been preaching Christ, and he's done this revolutionary thing by preaching Jesus even to the Gentiles, people who, who everyone else thought, no way, no way are these guys going to be in. And, and Paul finds himself um, being, being arrested by Jewish leaders and then taken before Roman leaders, and nobody knows quite what to do with him. Uh, he, he just sort of seems to be passed around, and nobody knows quite what to do. Today, as we look at the text, what I want us to kind of zoom in on is this idea of contentment. How is it that Paul is truly able to be in the highest of highs, preaching to groups of people and and experiencing God's miraculous work and doing miracles and and people getting saved and all that stuff, and then Paul being in, if you will, the lowest of lows where he's being beaten and stoned and he's being left and forgotten in prison and and he hasn't even been been able to receive a trial that um, that has any kind of conclusion to it because people just don't know what to do with it. And contentment is an interesting thing. I was thinking about it this, this week because contentment is not really one of the sexy virtues, you know, if I can say that. You know, we, 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 we have Christian virtues that we think, oh yeah, that one, that's the one I got to have. But contentment is not typically one of the ones that are top of the list because contentment's sort of like, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty much content once I get that and, and that, and then I'll be okay, you know, I mean, after all... Um, even the societies, you think about ancient cultures or civilizations that maybe did value contentment. You say, well, wasn't, didn't everybody sort of think that being content was kind of a good thing to be? Well, sure, unless there was another land you could conquer. And then it was always better to have more. And, and as much as we laugh at that, we're, we're not all that different because we, we say, well, I, yeah, I, contentment, I, I'm okay, I, I've got that. Um, I mean, for the most part, but, you know, I do just sort of need that, and if, if I had that, and if I had this, and someone made a joke on Facebook this week that it's one of the great ironies that one day after giving thanks for all the things we have, we go mad trying to buy more stuff just because it's on sale, you know. No, no, no you know, nothing wrong with buying stuff. I enjoyed things being on sale. It's great to have things on sale. But it's just maybe a little microcosm of our struggle with contentment, where we want to sit in Thanksgiving, we want to sit in Thursday on the Thursday day and say, yes, yes, I'm so thankful, isn't this great? And then come midnight, oh, but you know what I need is I need that flat screen and I need this and I need this. And again, there's the, the, the trouble with contentment as a virtue is it almost seems like a moving target, doesn't it? Because where do you draw the line? I mean, someone could say, well, look, the Amish got it right. They don't even have electricity in their content. So well, I, I couldn't do that. I, I, I'm, I draw my line right here. Say, so, well, okay. You know, a funny thing I've noticed, the older I've gotten and the more kids I have, that line keeps moving. <laughs> I mean, when I was like in my 20s, I was like, oh, this is all I need. And then I got married and I realized that curtains matter. <laughs> and then you have to have throw pillows to match the curtains. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you know? 
And then all of a sudden I realized I needed all kinds of stuff that I didn't think I needed. And this line of contentment keeps sliding. It just keeps sliding. And so it's a difficult thing to talk about. Maybe that's the reason we don't talk about it in church because we don't want to force a standard on someone else and say, well, this is what contentment looks like and therefore you need to have this. I want us to explore it this morning, not from the angle of specifics and saying, well, you know, this, this large of a house or this kind of a car, that's it and that's where the line... No, I, I want us to kind of zoom out and look at this at the deepest sense there could be. How is Paul truly able to be content whether he is abased or whether he abounds? We, we heard it. This is Paul writing from Philippians and we'll come back to that text in a moment. But let's jump back into the story here at Acts 25. So a little bit of background. Last we left this story, Paul was with Felix, and, uh, who is a Roman sort of provincial governor. And Felix kind of says, okay, I hear what you're saying, Paul, and it almost kind of makes sense. And truly, you haven't done anything wrong, but we'll see. And then Felix just sort of ignores him and lets him be in his prison until Felix is removed from power. And now a guy named Festus has come to power. Festus. And, um, and, 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 and this guy kind of has a similar sort of political kind of thing where he's sort of saying, well, maybe I'll help Paul, but I don't really want to anger the Jews, but I don't want to anger my Roman authorities because we value justice, or at least the appearance of justice. And so we can't punish someone just because. And Paul, again, being passed around like a hot potato. Pick up the story here in verse 7. And when he arrived, many Jews who had come down from Jerusalem surrounded him And they brought serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove them. And in his own defense, Paul said, look, I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, against the temple, or against Caesar. Festus, wanting to put the Jews in his debt, so wanting a little little political ploy here, asked Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to stand trial before me concerning these things? Now, if you've been following the story, he's been there. He's been under Jewish trial, and he's saying, no, I'm trying to get under Roman appeal here. And Paul replied, I'm standing before Caesar's court. I ought to be tried here. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you well know. And if I'm guilty and have done something that deserves death, then I won't try to avoid death. I'm not going to try to run away. But if there's nothing to their accusations against me, no one has the authority to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar." And after Festus conferred with his advisors, he responded, You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. If you're following the story, Paul's claim is threefold. He's basically said, Look, I haven't sinned against the Jewish law, against the Torah, against Yahweh. I haven't broken Jewish law. Secondly, I haven't sinned against the temple. I haven't done anything that's, that's defiled the temple. And there's a long backstory here of why that's so important to the Jews. It has to do with, with what happened during their, um, um, their, the, the Maccabean revolt or the time leading right up to the Maccabean revolt. And we're coming up also on a season that our Jewish friends celebrate as Hanukkah. That's the backstory of this. But it had only been 150 years or so before the time of Christ that for all of the Jews, the temple was so sacred and it was not to be sinned against and Paul's saying I didn't break God's law I haven't profaned the temple and furthermore thirdly I haven't broken Roman law I'm not doing anything Roman Roman rule as we've been talking about is mostly concerned with keeping the peace and Paul's saying I haven't done that now if we were to step back and kind of say why is Luke telling us this story about Paul I mean we've got chapter after chapter after chapter about Paul's trial scenes like okay I like courtroom dramas but Luke that's enough Why is Luke doing this? 
Possibly for a couple reasons. Maybe one, one reason Luke is telling us so much about Paul's uh, trial is to remind later Roman authorities that Christians weren't politically dangerous or inherently. Uh, they couldn't quite escape that because they were claiming Jesus to be king and Caesar to be not. But Luke is maybe trying to say, look, technically Christians aren't breaking laws and rules here. You know, it's worth saying, and maybe in a couple of weeks we'll come back to this, but we imagine the persecution of the first Christians as something like the persecution that takes place maybe in, a, uh, uh, in an extreme Islamic country or in the old communist regimes or things like that. But really, Rome was very different than that. Rome didn't persecute Christians because they hated the religion of Christianity. Why did Rome persecute Christians? Because Christians made it tough to get along with others, specifically in this regard. Christians claimed that there was only one God. Well, so did Jews. That's true. But the Jews were now kind of disowning these Christians and saying, well, they're not with us. And Rome was very suspicious of anything that upset the status quo. So they were like, look, you can worship your any God you want so long as it doesn't mess with the peace or with the economy. <laughs> Keep religion private. And Christians showed up and said, religion's not private. Leslie Newbegin, the great British uh, missionary and theologian in, in the 20th century, talked about the gospel as public truth. He said, look, you have personal knowledge of it, but it's a public truth. It's an announcement, in other words, that affects everybody, whether you like it or not. Christians weren't being persecuted because they had a personal Lord and Savior as a private truth. They were being persecuted because Caesar said, you're dangerous, You're upsetting the peace because you're claiming that there's only one king and it's not Caesar. And that's making a lot of people really upset. And maybe Luke is putting, showing all these trial scenes to say, yes, but Christians aren't bad people. They're not breaking laws. They're not causing all of this stuff. So maybe that's one motive for Luke. But maybe the other motive is to encourage the church about how to handle persecution. After all, by the time Acts is being written, persecution is starting to ramp up. The Emperors Nero and others were, were famous for some of the stuff that they would do to, um, to get Christians to recant, to, to worship Caesar. And maybe Luke is trying to say, he's trying to teach the church what it looks like to live at peace with all men. Actually, by the time we see Paul in Acts 25 living this scene, he's already written his letter to Romans, most likely. And do you remember that famous verse in Romans 12? Romans 12, 18, Paul wrote... If possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. In other words, yes, Christianity is counter-cultural, but you don't have to go looking for a fight. Don't go starting the fight. And as an aside, it does make me wonder about us sometimes. (laughs) Some of the culture wars we are intent on waging almost seems like we are looking for the fight, not trying to the best of our ability to live at peace with all men. And Paul's saying, look, there's enough about our faith that runs against the grain of the culture. You don't need to go yelling at people and picking fights and and, and boycotting stuff. Try to live at peace with all men. But as we think about that, I think that idea of Paul writing and saying, look, here we are in this strange place. We're living in, 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 I'm here in Rome. I'm under trial and all this stuff. And I can't. I can't, uh, things aren't as I had hoped. And yet Paul seems to be able to have this art of living at peace. How is it? And I wonder if, 
Our external living at peace is a function or a product of our internal contentment. That maybe when things are not at rest in your heart, you tend to become more likely prone to agitation outside. Have you ever noticed that? I, 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 I remember um, a couple years ago, maybe three, four years ago, I was um, especially irritable around the house. I know you can't imagine that because I'm such a nice guy. But I do have a sin nature, and I do get irritated. And, and I remember just sort of just, just little things, just kind of get bothered. And Holly would say, what's wrong with you? Why are you so easily kind of, oh, I don't know, you know? And, and, and one day I sat down to kind of say, Lord, what is going on? Why am I so like, you know? And I realized that there was a lot inside me that was not at rest. I was not at rest about my own place in life. Um, there was you could say, a lack of contentment. And that lack of contentment on the inside was creating a lack of peace on the outside. And so we could do a whole sermon on either thing, living at peace with all men or contentment. Today we're going to choose this one. We're going to talk about this because I think, I suspect, that it's because Paul, like he said, had learned the secret of being content that he was able to live at peace with all men. And it's worth asking the question, if you're always the person in the middle of a brawl, with words, or fists, if you're that type, you know. If you find yourself always in the midst of an argument or a fight, or you're always trying to prove some, somebody wrong, and you're always trying to take somebody down, and you're always waging wars on social media, which I've learned is really annoying and unproductive and unfruitful. And if you're that person, maybe it's worth kind of saying, Lord, is there something in me that I am not at a place of contentment? Maybe I have not yet learned the secret of being content. And so sometimes our external behavior is a warning light for an internal dysfunction or an internal unhealthiness. Maybe our external strife is a sign of... Actually, James says something like this, doesn't he? He says, where do these wars and strife come from among you? It comes from in you because you want stuff and you don't have it. In other words, there's not contentment in here. And if there were contentment in here, it would show up in a different way out there. So what is it? What what would Paul say to us is the secret of being content? Let's read that Philippians 4 verse again. Philippians 4 verse 11. I'm not saying this because I need anything. And he's talking to them about, about giving and serving with him. And he says, look, for I have learned how to be content in any circumstance. I know the experience of being in need and having more than enough. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, whether having plenty or being poor. Do you know how remarkable it is? I mean, we cruise through those phrases, but that's a remarkable place to be. And then he says... I can endure all these things through the power of the one who gives me strength. Now, it's worth saying that as much as I love and appreciate football players who put scripture verses and quote scripture verses, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, maybe one of the most misappropriated scripture verses. Because unless the person or the athlete means I can do all things, meaning I can lose graciously and I can win victoriously or whatever through Christ who gives me strength. But it certainly does not mean I can complete 20 passes and throw four touchdowns and run through six tackles through Christ who strengthens me. Hallelujah! Victory for my team. It doesn't mean that. Paul is, is saying, 
What can I do through Christ who strengthens me? I can live with lots and I can live with little. I can have it all. I can have nothing. How? How? Because the world says, look, listen, our culture tells us that the secret of being content is to find this sweet spot of income and to sit there and, and have this and these kinds of vacations. And, and the moment any of those things are taken away, we begin to lose a sense of joy or peace. Or let's say, okay, maybe it's not even money. Maybe it's, maybe it's health or maybe it's family. It's all about family. But God forbid not to be morbid, but what if you, you lose a family member or a loved one? And all of a sudden you say, well, wait a minute. That was where my peace was. and That's where my contentment comes from. And Paul says, there's something through Christ who gives me strength. There's something deeper than all that. There is Jesus. There is a strength that Jesus gives that somehow is richer and deeper that I, can, I have learned to go through this and to go through that. To have it, to have it taken away and somehow to still sit in contentment. That's a beautiful mystery to me. I'm not there. And I don't think any of us would say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm there. But it does, it is incredibly good news to know that there's something about Jesus that truly makes that possible. Don't you think? You know, we talk about wanting to be free from the systems of the world. So I want to be free from that, man. I don't want to be a puppet in the hands of, you know, whatever, the billionaires on Wall Street or whatever the, the gripe is. I don't want to be this or I don't want to be a puppet to the government or, you know, whatever your line is. We all talk about wanting to be free from the ups and downs of being sort of yanked around. The secret of that is something Paul stumbled on. It's Jesus. Something about Jesus that makes us stop and say, huh, all right, I can make it through this. I can make it through that. Why? Because I've done it before and I am a pioneer, doggone it. No. Through Christ who gives us strength. Let's unpack this a little bit. I think there's three things that we could say about Paul. Philippians, the tradition says Philippians was written while Paul was in his Roman prison. So in other words, this whole courtroom thing, not to ruin the end of the story for you, but it doesn't go so well. And Paul gets stuck in prison. It's a fairly nice prison where people could visit him and bring him food. But prison nonetheless. And from prison he writes Philippians and says, I've learned the secret to being content. He's not writing this from, with velvet purple robes, having been made the high priest or whatever. He's, he's writing this from this place of emptiness. And he says, uh, you know what? At the end of my life, I can tell you, I found the secret. Number one... Maybe there's part of it, part of the key to this is the word perspective. The perspective that we gain, we say, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't matter. And, and when I talk to people who've lived long enough in life, who've gone through enough highs and lows, I, I hear things like this. I hear men and women say to me, you know, Glenn, I was really excited about that when I was, they don't say when I was your age because they're not condescending like that, but they're, they're nice, you know. I, I remember being real, but you know what I've learned, Glenn, is that, that doesn't last forever, you know. I remember the, the early days, you know, where, when I was first traveling with the Desperation Band. We thought, this was it, man. This was the pinnacle. People invited us to play music, and they sometimes paid us. You know, it's like, yes, we have arrived. 
And then you realize that this too shall pass. You know, you're like, yeah, it's okay. You gain perspective when you say, you know, that's okay, that's good, but I like this. And there, how, how many times do you come through life and you, you look back and you say, yeah, yeah, I mean, that was great, but I've been through that and I've been through that and it's fine, it's okay. And there's something about Paul now toward the end of his life writing in Philippians, having gone through these Roman trials and he's saying, I've been there, I've done that, it's, it's okay, great, you know? Perspective can change it. But maybe there's another way to think about perspective. My kids, <laughs> we, we read them this, um, we were just reading it this week actually, it's a, it's a book based on an old Yiddish tale called It Could Always Be Worse. <laughs> Anybody know this story? It's this Jewish family, so the legend goes, and they have, uh, uh, it's a family of six. They have four kids, and they live in this tiny one-room hut. And one kid is throwing the ball around, and it's breaking windows. Another kid is always sneezing or coughing. Another kid is practicing the piano, and another kid is, like, crying. You know, it's a baby or whatever. It's like my house. And... Um, and, and so, so the, the dad goes to the rabbi, or the couple goes to the rabbi, and says, Rabbi, you've got to help us. This is crazy. And he says, well, do you have a dog? He says, yes, I have a dog. He says, okay, bring the dog in the house. He brings the dog in the house, you know, and then, and then the dog starts barking and chasing people, and they're like, well, what in the world? So they go back to the rabbi. and say, Rabbi, what do we do? He says, do you have chickens? He says, yes, we have chickens. Okay, bring your chickens into the house. He's like, okay. And he bring the, they bring the chickens in, and now the chickens are, bark, 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 and there's the, the dogs chasing the chickens, and the, the ball flying everywhere and the piano is practicing and, and the couple says this is crazy and they go back to the rabbi and say rabbi what do we do and he says do you have a goat he says yes we have a goat bring the goat in the house you know and then the goat comes in and now the goat's there's windows shattering people are crying and they're thinking what have we done this is crazy and they go back to the rabbi and he says rabbi what do we do and he says do you have a cow yes we have a cow bring the cow in the house and now there's cow pie in strategic places in this one bit and it's just a big mess and it smells bad and it's noisy and they go back and they say rabbi we can't do this what do we do and he says take out the cow take out the goat take out the chickens take out the dog they take those all out of the house and they go back and they're like this is amazing <laughs> and they go back to see the rabbi they say rabbi it worked like our kids you know and, and, he, and he says, well, see, this, the, the moral of the story is it could always be worse, you know. <laughs> and, and nothing actually changed. Just, yeah, you get it. So perspective, right? But maybe it's not just perspective when you see something that could be worse, because yes, there could be worse. But that's a morbid way to find contentment, isn't it? To just sort of find the worse, worse, worse. Paul, in his trials, if you've Notice in, in Acts, he's mentioned a phrase over and over again, and the phrase is resurrection. He keeps saying, look, the Jews are upset because I'm preaching the resurrection. Perspective is not just about how things could be worse. Perspective is also about what God will do one day. And what happens when you really catch a glimpse of that? Man, I could preach a whole sermon about hope. And if our hope is constructed to be an escapist, ethereal, spiritual, fly-away-to-heaven kind of hope, that's not a hope that inspires contentment and peace today. It doesn't. Because it doesn't give me hope for the things that are broken in my hand right now to say, don't worry, one day you'll get to leave it. Huh? I mean, I have kids. 
When a toy breaks or a car won't work or a doll gets snapped up, I, I don't say to them, don't worry, Nora. One day we get to throw the doll away. Huh? That doesn't even make any sense. But isn't that how many Christians think about the future? Don't worry, life's difficult, but one day God will trash the planet and we'll get to leave it anyway. Yippee. Paul says a very different thing. Romans 8 is a chapter well worth meditating on. And we know different snippets of Romans 8, but if you catch the whole train of thought in Romans 8, he says this in verse 18. He says, I believe that the present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul, what is this coming glory? The rest of Romans 8, Paul begins to say, look, there's coming a day where the sons of man, where humanity will be redeemed. And he says, look, actually the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is going to quicken our mortal bodies. Now, I've heard charismatics quote this on the last day of a conference when they're really tired. And they're like, oh, spirit, quicken my mortal body. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying on the, in the end, you will get a resurrected body the same way Jesus did. That same body will be rebuilt, re-energized, reconstituted in a new way. Not a different body, but that one redeemed and glorified. And then Paul says at the end of Romans 8, he says, actually, all of creation is waiting for that day because creation itself has been subjected to slavery that it did not wish on itself. Could you imagine as beautiful as the world is what this world would look like not in chains? Think of that. The most beautiful thing you've seen in the world is still creation in chains. What would Pike's Peak be like unchained? What would the glorious Niagara Falls look like unchained? What would a sunset look like in a creation that was redeemed and renewed unchained? Amazing. Paul says that's the hope. And that's the hope that gives you a different perspective. And that's why he can say our present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory. God's not going to throw it away and give you something different. He's going to make it all come alive. Secondly, I think what can help with contentment or Paul's secret of being content in all things is gratitude. There's nothing that helps perspective like gratitude. You ever notice that just as our physical bodies can lead our hearts in worship, so our words can kind of turn our hearts. I think this is what James meant when he said the tongue is like a rudder that turns a ship. I'm not saying this in a magical power of your words, kind of chant and spell your way into a new Lexus kind of stuff that you hear some guys on TV. I'm not saying that. But I do think your words can turn your heart a little bit. And one of the best ways they do that is by grateful words coming out of your lips. Some of you, I, I heard, were reading Ann Voskamp's book, 1,000 Gifts. Maybe some, some of you have read it. My wife read it a couple years ago. And, and uh, it, it's a remarkable story about her own battle with depression and not being able to get out of bed in the morning and, and some traumatic events that happened in her own life and with family and stuff and, uh, with her sister being killed and all of this stuff. And, and she writes about this experience of beginning to have a gratitude journal and to just begin every day to write down just a few things that she was grateful for. And really, this is kind of an, an old practice. St. Ignatius 
had the prayer of examine that he developed centuries ago. And the very first step was to say gratitude, to begin to acknowledge the gifts of God. Can you imagine what your day would be, how your day would be different if you woke up in the morning and you said, I'm not, before I do anything, I'm going to say to God 10 things that I'm grateful for today. Can you imagine how that would turn the course of your day like a rudder turns a ship? I mean, how different would it be to be able to say, God, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for this gift. God, I thank you for breath. God, I thank you for sunshine. God, I thank you for, and you, and you be as specific as you can be. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there's a bishop named Callistos Ware who writes about this, and he calls it the Eucharistic life. And Anne Voskamp uses something similar, even from the Reformed tradition, so you can see this is something that kind of spans the lines of the church. But a Eucharistic life, Eucharist, the bread and the cup, is the word that means thanksgiving. And Callistos Ware talked about the Eucharistic life as this. He says, what if you received the world as a gift from God and offered it back to God in grateful praise. Could you imagine receiving the world as a, great, as a gift from God and offering it back to God in grateful praise? Gratitude. Gratitude is a game changer on so many levels. Because it begins to break us out of small-mindedness. It begins to break us out of the lie that tells us that you're all alone. Or the lie that says that nobody cares. Or the lie that says you don't really have what you need. Or the lie that says that nobody really sees you. And it makes you kind of look up and out and say, God, you see me. And you've given me this day. God, you, you're here. And you called the sun to rise this morning. And all of a sudden, there are 10,000 reasons to glorify and praise the Lord. I was thinking last week, Don, Greg, a number of us, we were in in England for a conference and and, and, uh, we had a day to sightsee and so Greg and I I went to uh, Westminster Abbey in London we went caught Evensong, which is a choral singing service at at St. Paul's Cathedral I mean, these are cathedrals and buildings built in the 600s, 700s. I mean, remarkable places. And then on, on, on another day, um, we went up to Oxford and, and, uh, and, and we sat. I think right when you were taking communion here on last Sunday, we were taking communion in Merton College Chapel in Oxford uh, um, in a candlelit service where they were singing the liturgy. It was just gorgeous. And walking in Oxford, you know, we, I'm kind of a geek, and so... We saw the actual apartment where Tolkien lived until he died, you know. Like, hmm, a, a hobbit's door, you know. And we walked into this hall. This is where C.S. Lewis, like, ate his meals in Maudlin College. This is the very path that Lewis and Tolkien walked along the way by the river there outside Maudlin College. And we like, oh my gosh, we sat on the bench. And we're like, imagine what conversations they had. And we went, then we went to the, the, the pub, you know, uh, um, the eagle and the child, you know, where Tolkien and, and Lewis would sit and talk about their books. We're like, oh my gosh, this is where. And I came home last week and we, we had um, my sister-in-law and her husband and their kids with us. And we celebrated Thanksgiving. And, and then I, 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 was, I was doing the dishes one day, looking out the window and watching the kids play. And, and I just sort of had this thought. This is the backyard where Sophia and Nora and Jonas used to run around. 
This is the chair where I would sit and read them stories. This is the blanket that Jane used to snuggle with. And all of a sudden, perspective plus gratitude begins to change things. And you realize it's not just those special moments. It's the special moments all around us that gratitude opens our eyes to see. Gratitude opens our eyes to see Christ at work among us. This is the very place. This is the very thing. Like Jacob waking up from his stairway to heaven dream and saying, God was in this place and I didn't know it. And it was just an ordinary place. I wonder how many ordinary moments there are in our life and in our day where we say, wait, this is the very moment. God was here when you smiled at that person. God was here when you invited that person to lunch after church. God was here when you took a Thanksgiving basket to the Knob Hill neighborhood. Wait, wait, wait. God was in that very place. Wow. And it's gratitude, I think, that, that gives us new eyes. It's gratitude that gives us new eyes to see these things. Finally, the thing that helps us to be grateful is trust. Trust. If we're honest, the reason why it's hard to be content is because we are convinced that if we don't take care of ourselves, no one else will. If we're honest, the, the reason contentment is so elusive is because we think that if I don't go and get that, and if I don't have that, then things won't be all right. And if I don't make sure things are all right, then it won't be all right. I have to do it or else it won't happen. And really at the root of it, it's not an issue about stuff. It's an issue about trust. Contentment at the end of the day is not about the stuff. It's about the trust. Who do you trust? Who do you really trust in? In yourself and your own ability to make things happen and take care of yourself? And that? Or ultimately, at the bottom of it all, is there this trust in God? Here's a good mantra or a prayer to say I am not in control but the one who is is good and loves me more than I know wouldn't that be a good prayer I'm not in control but the one who is is good and loves me more than I know see the truth is being in control is not as good as being loved by the one who is. Being in control is not as good as being loved by the one who is in control. Ultimately, that's what matters. Parents, I think, we think of this often in, in different situations. Several weeks ago, we were in the mall and I was with our, our girls and one of them wanted to leave the store on a different exit than we had come in. He said, Dad, you go up this way and I'll go up this way and then we'll find each other out in the mall. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I said, no, honey, we're going to stick together. We will go in and out the same entrance and exit together. You can call me controlling. Maybe I am. But, hey, 
it's my job. So, so here I am. I'm saying, no, no we're not going to do this. And this moment, you know, she was particularly tired or hungry or whatever and just had a meltdown right there and then in the mall. And every parent knows if there's one place you don't want a meltdown, it's the mall. And so you'll tend to do anything you can to avoid the meltdown. But I could not avoid the meltdown. I said, honey, we, we just got to go. And so we're walking out. She walks out with me. We go about 10 feet and then it's this. You know, that's not going to come out on the podcast, but, but just this upset, angry, I don't understand, confused. And I, and I, I, I looked at her and said, honey, you've got to just trust me. There are things I don't want to explain to you. There are things I don't want you to have to know about in the world right now. But I just want you to trust that I'm thinking about all those things and I want you with me. Fine. We talked about it, and later her consequence was that she had to uh, write me a short note about what she learned that day. And so she wrote me this note, and it says, Dad, I'm sorry that I threw a fit at the mall. I want to trust you. I want, uh, I, I, I want to trust that you will do what's best for me. And I will pray that God will help me. I just thought in that moment, that's what we need. Every day we need to be able to say, why am I not content? Why am I at so much angst and anxiety and unrest and so much struggle? And maybe, yes, perspective helps and yes, gratitude helps, but at the end of the day, the root of this all goes down into the question, do you trust me? Do you trust that I love you, God says? Do you trust that I, your Father, I see things you don't see and do you trust that there's a coming glory that will outweigh all of this present suffering? Do you trust that there's, I am at work even in this ordinary world all around you and you could be grateful? Do you trust that the God who is in control is good and loves you more than you know? As we get ready to come to the table this morning, I've been thinking about the words of this old English hymn written in the 1800s. And the verses are remarkable. It says, For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies, Lord of all, to Thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. I confess that I was introduced to this hymn through the movie Little Women. It's a great scene, though. <laughs> and as I, as I looked up more of the verses, it's just such a beautiful hymn. For the beauty of each hour, of the day and of the night, hill and vale and tree and flower, sun and moon and stars of light, Lord of all, to Thee we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. And I just thought maybe we could sing it this morning as we're getting ready to come to the table. Because here at the table is the place where we can say that God hath provided. So how do I know I can trust God? 
How do I know that he's good? How do I know? Do you know what else is in Romans 8? Towards the end of Romans 8, Paul makes this amazing statement. He says, For if he did not withhold his own son from us, but willingly gave his life and his blood, how much more will he not withhold anything from those he loves? I'm telling you, Romans 8 is full of everything we've been talking about this morning. How do I know that The coming glory is better than the present suffering because of the cross. Because we look to the cross and we see that it's empty and we know that there's resurrection that's coming. How do we know that there's gratitude, there's reason to be thankful because Jesus lavished His grace on us. That God is not the God that says, well, you figure it out and you be good and if you're good, I'll make things work out for you. Grace is better than karma. We have a God that says, no, look, here is everything though you've done nothing to earn this this to you our grateful hymn of praise how do we know we can trust him because of jesus